Good morning, everybody. I think I can just about see you through these lights. Uh, it's, it's so great to be here with you. Um, thanks for the invitation, Joel and, and the other brothers. It is, uh, I, I love to, to visit other Sovereign Grace churches. Uh, I've had the opportunity to do that over the last 20 years. Uh, but one church in particular that I have wanted to come to since we moved uh, from England is this church because I've heard so much about this church. Uh, I've heard so much about all that God is doing in and through you, and uh, so it is just great for me to be able to bring my family um, to see you, to meet you, to be among you, to worship with you, to gather around God's word together, to rejoice in the gospel. So uh, I'm, I'm just so grateful to be here and uh, grateful that my family could be here. I'm very grateful to Joel and Jason and Drew and Sean and Nathan who... Uh, are becoming friends of mine. We've been partners for a long time in Sovereign Grace, but now we are friends. And so that is, that is a wonderful blessing to me. So thank you. Uh, as I was thinking about preaching here, uh, I got on the website and looked at the last three weeks to, and I went to listen to glimpses of previous sermons. Uh, it's, it's something I like to do just as I go to other churches. And I noticed that, as Joel mentioned, over the last three weeks, you've been concluding the book of Exodus. And so Sean had two chapters. Joel had two chapters. Drew had two chapters. And they were able to preach through these hundreds of verses in like 35 minutes. And so I, as I looked at these sermons, I was just in awe of your pastors as they faithfully handled God's word in such massive chunks in the time allotted. And I thought that was, I, I was just like, wow. I don't presume to hit the heights <laughs> that your pastors hit. And so I would like to invite you to turn to just one verse this morning. <laughs> If you would, that's the kind of preacher I am, just a one verse man, so, no. so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you from the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, now if you don't know where Zephaniah is, do not be embarrassed about getting out the contents page, do not worry if you're having to look there, if you would like to, a challenge, you can just find it yourself, don't confuse it with Zechariah, but if you need some help, go to the book of Matthew and then count back four books. And as you find it, let me begin with this. Songs have been written about every imaginable topic possible, but the best ones, from the swooning kind of 50s ballads to the contemporary club bangers, are about the topic of love. Bert Bacharach told us that what the world needs now is love, but the Righteous Brothers told us we had lost that loving feeling. The Beatles reminded us that she loves you, and Whitney Houston says, I will always love you. Foreigner said, I want to know what love is, and the Bee Gees asked, how deep is your love? So Lionel Richie and Diana Ross said, it's endless love. And Huey Lewis and the News told us of the power of love. The Backstreet Boys told us that they would be fine as long as you love me, and Beyonce and Jay-Z had a crazy in love. Calvin Harris and Rihanna found love in a hopeless place. <laughs> Justin Bieber told us to love yourself, and everybody knows the Taylor Swift love story. You see that when you watch the NFL. <laughs> Musical fads 
change over time, but love and the songs inspired by it never go out of style. Who doesn't love a good love song? And if you are married or you have been in love, I'm sure that you have your song. Well, today we're going to hear the greatest love song of all time from this one Old Testament verse, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Now, Zephaniah, before we read it, is one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean he's less important. It just means he's shorter. So, uh, in England, I, I, was, uh, I pastored with two guys who were both six foot four, so I was the minor pastor. <laughs> Not less important, just shorter. But Zephaniah was a prophet of judgment who foretold of the day of the Lord, which was a day that in the, in the near term for Zephaniah and the people of God at that time was judgment against the, the southern kingdom of Judah, but it also had a future day of judgment in mind, which God was planning against the entire world. And against the backdrop of looming judgment, Zephaniah gives radio airplay time to this most glorious love song, and the recording artist is God himself. So let's read just this one verse and hear what God has to say to us this morning. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I believe God wants to encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith this morning through this love song by helping us to freshly see that God is a mighty deliverer who not only saves his people, but he loves them and delights in them. And so I just have two points this morning that correspond to the two halves of the verse that I hope and I pray the Holy Spirit will use to strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts So we're going to look at God's deliverance and then God's delight. So two things, God's deliverance and God's delight. I begin with God's deliverance. Hopefully you've still got your Bibles open. And in verse 17, you will notice that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So Zephaniah announces that God is a mighty warrior who is going to draw near to save his people. But the first question we should ask is, Save from what? And in order to answer that question, we just need to flick back a page to chapter 1 of Zephaniah in order to get the answer because we find out in chapter 1 verse 1 that Zephaniah is prophesying during the reign of King Josiah. It's somewhere in the region of 640 to 600 BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 22. But to set the historical context in the Old Testament... Uh, after the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was split into two. The ten northern tribes formed the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom was made up of Judah and Jerusalem. 
northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And a little more than 80 years before Zephaniah prophesied these words, the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their sin and their spiritual adultery and their apostasy and their faithlessness towards God, were swept away by Assyrian conquerors. And Judah watched on but failed to learn the lessons of the northern neighbors and sank deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion against God and his law. And the opening two-thirds of Zephaniah are pretty disturbing and pretty distressing reading as God declares judgment on Judah because of their sin and spiritual adultery and apostasy and faithlessness. In fact, if you read verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 and 4, you see some of the most dramatic opening verses in any book of the whole Bible, where God announces, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. And I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, why is God so furious? Why is God, who is revealed elsewhere in the Old Testament as slow to anger and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, why does he speak of such swift and severe judgment against his people? Well, Zephaniah gives us three reasons. He tells us that there's pride and idolatry that dwells among the people. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, they bow down to different gods and they swear to the Lord, but they also worship Milcom. They're kind of covering all of their bases, but in doing so, they are offending the true God. He says they've turned back from following the Lord and they do not seek him or inquire of him. So there's an idolatry and a spiritual pride. In in, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, we also find that they're rejecting God's word. They refuse to honor God's word. They're opposed to God's word. They they reject his correction of them because in their pride, they think they can do better off without him. There's also a complacency that is set into their souls. Chapter 1, verse 12, we hear that there is complacency, that uh, they've lost sight of God and his holiness. They are trivializing, they're minimalizing. They're living as practical atheists where they believe that God doesn't really matter. You know, our sin really isn't that serious against him and he's not really serious about dealing with our sin, so we'll just carry on regardless. And then there's a self-reliance. There's an obsession and a dependence on the things of this world. The people of Judah were looking for two finer homes, more wine, extravagant wealth for protection and satisfaction. You infer that from verses 13 and verses 18 of chapter 1. And so Judah looks a lot like we do today, if you think about it. Lots of us live comfortably and confidently but condemned because of our rejection of God. And we are under his most severe judgment. Now Judah was going to face the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but that, that was a secondary kind of, they were pawns in God's hand because the awesome God who dwells in unapproachable light 
They've committed cosmic treason against him. And so we have some of the Bible's most stark warnings in Zephaniah 1 verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. And verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and then to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Zephaniah paints this picture that God is angry at sin. And it's only a matter of time before sinners are in lots of trouble. And trouble is what happened to Judah. Not long after Zephaniah prophesied these words, God was good to his promise. And he sent the Babylonians who swept in. They conquered Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They carted off the Jews into exile. And it was all God's judgment against his people for their sin. And while the exile was cataclysmic, it was a cataclysmic event in the history of God's Old Testament people, it didn't fully capture the universality and the comprehensiveness and the severity of the day of the Lord that Zephaniah foresaw. But what happened to Judah in the 600 BCs was a signpost and a foreshadowing and a foretaste of a greater and more terrible day of the Lord that is still to come. Upon all sinners near and far. Sinners of every nation and every generation, including our own. I bet you didn't come to church to hear that bad news, did you? But there is a glimmer of hope. While Judah and the whole world sinks uh, in sin and rebellion and soaks themselves in doing what, what they want to do and they are against God. God, in his gracious mercy and love, has his eyes and his heart set on a few, what, what he calls a remnant. Men and women who he has chosen and he has determined and decided to save quite apart from what they deserve. And this glimmer of hope is found in chapter 2, verse 2, and it's kind of wedged in between these two judgment sections where Zephaniah calls the people to repentance. There's a kind of a small chink of light against the backdrop of darkness where he calls them, seek the Lord, 2 verse 2. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you might be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So there's this call to repentance. Zephaniah holds out hope. There's a way that the guilty can be free. There's a way that the condemned can be spared the wrath of God. How? In humility we turn and we seek the Lord. But then this glimmer of hope in 2 verse 2 bursts into a glorious display of God's mercy in chapter 3 verse 9 where alongside this outpouring, this worldwide outpouring of the wrath of God against sin, God says he's going to undertake a mighty act of mercy. God is going to move. 
God is going to take the initiative and he's going to save and he's going to purge and he's going to purify sinners of their sin and create a people for himself. He's going to deliver a people for his own possession, those who call upon his name. So in chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, we, we find this deliverance is described as as God reaches out and is merciful to an undeserving remnant, he's going to clear away all their enemies. He's going to clear away the judgments against them. He's going to clear away all their guilt and their shame. He's going to clear away all their fears and he's going to make them trophies of his grace. And now back to our verse in verse 17. Zephaniah says that God himself God himself is going to do this delivering work. He's going to do this rescuing work. He's going to do this saving work by coming into the midst of his people as a mighty warrior who is going to fight and be victorious and conquer the enemies of his people and deliver them from wrath and judgment that they deserve. And if you're tracking with me, you will see this. That the very one from whom God's People, Judah, and the very one we need to be saved from is the very one who will come to save us. How? How is this going to happen? When? When is this going to happen? When is God going to come as a mighty warrior and save and deliver his people? Well, the, the final answer to that dilemma, Zephaniah can't offer us. And actually, neither can the rest of the Old Testament in, in fullness. Yet the prophets, they have us on the edge of, their, of our seats as the kind of the snowballing effect of everything that they get, that they say begins to create anticipation and expectancy and eagerness. Where, when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Who's the one? And what is mysterious and shadowy in the Old Testament comes into the bright daylight in the New Testament. Consider the words of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. That familiar Christmas passage where an angel of the Lord appears to in, to a, in a dream to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, in this case, Isaiah, not Zephaniah, but still. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means, God with us. Emmanuel. God with us, God in our midst, a mighty one to save. You shall call his name Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sins. And we find as we put the Old Testament together with the New Testament that Jesus, the perfect and sinless Son of God, enters into the brokenness and into the mess of our world and he is willing to take upon himself the penalty for our sins, to bear the full and furious wrath of God that we deserve Fully satisfying the justice of God 
And that all those who trust in him, who place their faith in him, who humble themselves and seek after righteousness and turn to the Lord and make him a refuge, we then experience God's mercy and receive Christ's righteousness and we experience the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life and we are saved and redeemed and delivered. And this salvation is not some transaction that happens we exchange this because of, our, and we get this because of our good works and our efforts. It's a gift extended to us out of the boundless mercy of our God. God is a mighty deliverer. He's a mighty one who comes into the midst of our brokenness to rescue us. And he does it through Jesus Christ. And the response of those who are delivered, verse 14, sing aloud, O daughters of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. We're to sing, we're to shout, we're to rejoice, we're to exult in God and his deliverance. We're to worship him, we're to praise him with all of our hearts, for he has delivered the undeserving like you and me so we're to sing I think we're going to do that in a few minutes but as we read on we realize we're not the only ones singing did you notice that in verse 17 this Lord God in our midst the mighty one to save is also a singer for not only does he deliver he delights in us And that's my second point this morning. He delights in us. Do you ever wonder what God really thinks about you? you, Excuse me. Excuse me. I I sometimes daydream and I sometimes think like on that final day when I am stood before the throne of God and God is there on his throne and we're surrounded by the people of God, what's he going to think about me? What's he going to say? Maybe you have never had this thought, but now I'm going to drop it in your mind. What will God think about you on that day? What will he say about you? Will he be happy with you? Or will he be disappointed with you, do you think? Will he frown disapprovingly and regret his decision? Wish that he could have his time again? Will he tut? You know, I used to, when I was growing up, I used to go to my grandparents' house. Uh, they lived a few hours from us. We'd go and stay, me and my two brothers. And whenever we got into trouble, my grandma would say very little. She would just tut. She would just go. <laughs> and you knew, okay. Do you expect God's divine tut? Do you think, oh man, I wish I had saved Bob instead of Nathan? Or do you think God is just going to stand up and he's going to say to everybody, well, I just, I did the best with the hand that was dealt me. What do we think God thinks of us? Well, I'll tell you because verse 17 tells us exactly what God thinks of us and what he will say on that day. 
when God has delivered a people for himself, when all the work of redemption and restoration and reconciliation is done and God has gathered his people together from all the four corners of the world, we're in for a treat because God is going to break out in song. He's going to sing these words. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God delights in his people. God smiles over us. God is joyful because we are with him, because we are his. He's going to be exuberantly happy that he gets to spend eternity with you. Wow. As I read this, I I, I was reminded of of Jesus' words in Luke 12. Do you remember Jesus when when he's speaking to his disciples? He says, this is verse 32 of Luke 12. He says, fear not, little flock, for see how the Father rolls his eyes and huffs as he gives you the kingdom. (laughs) Sorry, that's my old English translation. Now, of course he doesn't say that. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He rejoices over us with gladness, with joy, with delight. That the Almighty God should experience delight from his creation is significant enough in itself, if you like. That he could take delight in that which he has made. When he is... Self-sufficient, he needs nothing, but that he takes delight in that which he has made, that's significant. But the fact that God experiences delight and ecstasy in sinners, that's incomprehensible almost. And yet that is what Zephaniah tells us. But he's not finished. He goes on in the second bit of verse 17. He will quiet you by his love. I I imagine that God is going to come down from the throne and he's going to look each and every single believer, every child of his, you and me, in our eyes, and he's going to tell us of his deep and abiding and heartfelt love for each of us. He's going to embrace us. He's going to sweep us up into his arms of love. He's going to wipe away all the tears that we experience from the pain and the tragedy of living in this broken world. And he's going to tell us that all our fears are gone. And he's going to overcome the propensity within our hearts to wander away from him. That's kind of what it means to when it says he's going to quiet us with his love. He's going to come and he's going to whisper into our ear, because of my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. But then he's not finished there. We're told he's going to exult over us with loud singing. Just, just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, when... Who, who when the lost son comes back, the father runs to him and welcomes him. Puts a ring on his finger, gets him the best robe, kills the fattened calf and throws the biggest party that the town has ever seen. That's the kind of image here when it says God is going to exalt over us with loud singing. God is going to throw, throw a divine celebration. He's going to celebrate for our return to him. And the exalt and loud is supposed to be, get our minds thinking about exuberance and lavish ex- expressions of God's delight in his people, in you and me. Charles Spurgeon, when he was 
preaching on this very passage said these words, and this is the correct way to hear it with a British accent. He said, here you go, this is a treat. We are happy when God blesses us, but not so happy as God is. We are glad when we are pardoned, but he that pardons us is gladder still. The prodigal son, going back to his home, was very, very happy, but not so delighted as his father, who could say, this was my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the father's heart was the fullest of delight, and it was by far the larger heart, so that it could hold more joy. That is God's heart towards us, who have been delivered by his mighty warrior, Jesus. And these three expressions in, in verse 13, they're like being at a wedding, at least in England. Okay? In England, if you go to a wedding, what you'll find is we don't proceed, process? I don't even know what the word is. But the groom doesn't walk down the aisle. He stands at the front. And he waits. But what you find is he's there. He's there about half an hour before the bride arrives. And he's a little bit nervous, but he's grinning from ear to ear like the cat that got the cream because he's about to marry the love of his life. And all of his groomsmen, they're like high-fiving him and slapping him on the back. And they're, they're rejoicing with gladness at the day that is about to take place. And then the bride arrives and she walks down the aisle. And the groom turns to meet her and their eyes meet. And he's quietly absorbed in love for his bride. And in wonder at the object of his love as she makes her way down the aisle. There's, then there's this kind of poignant hush that falls across the whole room as they express their love for one another through their vows. And then the pastor pronounces them husband and wife and he says those famous words, you may now kiss the bride and the congregation of family and friends. They cheer and they clap and they applaud and they celebrate and then they go off to party usually with feasts and music and laughter and joy and singing and gladness. And Isaiah confirms that's what God will do for us. Isaiah 62 verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And these three descriptions, they're, they're designed to try and help us get our head around how God feels about us, but what he actually feels about us is far, far greater than what words can describe. But Zephaniah piles up these images in order to try and help us to get a glimpse of the unrestrained intensity of God's passion and delight in the people that he delivers. And the challenge for us this morning is not, it's not really to believe that God delights in people. It's not, the challenge is not to understand God to be a God of joy and delight and love. The real difficulty is in understanding that God loves you. Yeah, he's a God of love. That's his job description. But does he love me? But I want you to notice something from this verse. Because God repeatedly says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now the, the you that appears three times in the verse in the Hebrew, it's not a plural you. 
It's a singular you. It's not a corporate you. Your mess over there, God kind of delights in you. No, it has very specific names and faces. It's a singular you. It's a personal you. It's a specific you. It's a you that says, God loves you, Lucy. God loves you, Andrew. God loves you, Robert. God loves you, Susan. Fill in the blank of your own name. Verse 17 speaks reassurance and comfort that God provides at an individual level. And so this morning, amidst the restlessness of your heart, amidst the restlessness of your mind, may the love of God just quiet you in this moment. He loves you. He holds you in his hand. He carries you in his heart. He's glad. He delights. John Piper says about this verse, we must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though Christ somehow found a loophole in the law, did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No way. No way. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitutionary sacrifice and when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. You love that? I love that image. God welcomes us with bells on. I'm not a musician, but I can play some bells. God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger, kills the fattened calf, throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation. And leads in the festal dance. God delivers and God delights. God's heart towards his people, towards you and me, is large. He rejoices over you. His love for you is the surest. His joy in you is the fullest. His song over you is the loudest. And that is dumbfounding and staggering and true. But it's not just a picture of what God will say to you on that final day. Because we are united to Christ in his life and death and resurrection, now this is what God thinks about us today too. Just let that sink in for a moment. Just let that rest on you. For all those who are in Christ, this is what God thinks of you today. Isn't that good news? Now, if you are here and you are not a Christian, first of all, thank you for being here. I know this church loves to have people who have got questions about life and the universe and everything else. If you're listening to what I'm saying, you think, oh, I want in on that. Let me just tell you, there's one obstacle that is going to stop you experiencing all this good news. And that is your sin. Your pride where you don't seek the Lord, don't want anything to do with him, think you're better off without him, your self-sufficiency, your complacency, your self-love. If Zephaniah was here, he would say, you need to turn from your sins and repent 
and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to seek refuge in the Lord. Because it is only when we do that that we can experience his delight. You see, these two things go together. Deliverance and delight go together. You can't divorce the two and say, I'll just take the delight, thanks. You can't have part two without part one. So if you are here and you're not a Christian this morning and you are intrigued and you want to know more about what is being said and about this Jesus who offers deliverance from your sins, come and talk to me afterwards, come talk to Joel, anybody you've seen on the stage, they would be delighted to do that. And then you can get in on the greatest news of all time. You could be delivered from your sin and experience the delight and the love of God in your soul. But maybe you are a Christian and you have listened to me and you've just got a few thoughts. You think, ah, if you knew and if God knew what goes through my head on a day or what goes through my heart or what comes out of my heart in my mouth, the things that I do, the things that I feel, the things that I say, if you knew, I don't think God's delighted in me. And Zephaniah's response and God's response to you would be this. If you are in Christ, look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Yes, you might continue to sin, but God loves you knowing all your sins and your failings and all the skeletons in your closet, but he has taken your sin and nailed it to a cross. And put it on Christ. He has taken his judgments away from you. And Jesus has paid it all. So that Paul would say in Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we do not have to fear. We do not have to feel guilty. We can run to the cross. Repent and experience mercy. New every morning. But perhaps you're here and you say, well, if God loves me, then why am I in this situation? Why is this happening to me? Because if he loved me, he would make my life go better. Zephaniah's response and God's response would be this. If you are in Christ, look at verse 15. He has cleared away your enemies. He's a warrior who will save you. And then verse 19, there is a time coming when he will deal with all your oppressors. He would say to you, don't measure my love for you by your circumstances. You might feel surrounded by enemies and oppressed, but measure my love by the cross. For at the cross, Christ has done a work where he has conquered and vanquished all our enemies including sin and Satan and death. And he might not change your situation in the moment, but he can change your heart where you can experience his love. Or maybe you would say one final category. I I listen to this and it's great, but I just feel so distant from God. I feel like I hear this and it sounds just, you know, I can hear it, but it sounds muffled. It's underwater. Because I just feel so distant from God. I think Zephaniah and God would speak to you as well. And they would say this. Look at verse 15 and 17. Where Zephaniah and God continuously say. He's a God in your midst. He's a God in your midst. 
So whether you be sitting, driving, walking, studying, running, working, sleeping, whatever you are doing, he would want you to know that he's there. He's there with you. And he draws near this morning to remind you. He rejoices over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Turn to him. Spurgeon again said, and unfortunately this won't come up on the screen because it was a last minute edition. But Spurgeon said, God's love is so long that your old age cannot wear it out and your continual tribulations cannot exhaust it and your successive temptations cannot drain it dry. For God's love is like eternity itself. It knows no bounds. So this morning, let us ponder the love of God. Let us believe it and receive it. Let us be amazed by it. Let us bask in it. Let us feel it deeply and rest in it. And let us sing and shout and rejoice about it. So if the band want to come back, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in and by and through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from all our sins. And thank you that we are loved by you beyond our deepest longings and our wildest dreams. I pray for every one of us who's listened to these words right now that we would feel the wonder of your word and your truth. We thank you for being a God in our midst, for being with every single one of us amidst all that we are walking through all the places where we are, all the challenges that we are facing. Thank you that even in this moment, you're reminding us that we're not alone, that you are a mighty one who saves, and that you don't just save us, but that you rejoice over us with gladness. May our hearts be awakened to the wonder that the King of kings and the Lord of lords loves us and exalts over us with loud singing. Oh Lord, who are we that we would deserve this? We praise you, Jesus, for making all of this possible. I do want to pray for the restless and the anxious hearts and minds that might be in the room. Lord, I pray that you would quiet them with your love. That all day long when they are tempted to be anxious or to worry, to despair, that you would remind them that you are God in their midst and that you love them and delight in them. Lord, we pray that you would make this a reality in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And that we, we want everybody to know this glorious truth. We want everybody to know you like this. That you're a God who delivers and a God who delights. And so we ask that you would help us to share the gospel with those around us today. We ask this for your glory and in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.